0: Our passage tonight comes out of Hosea, and we're going to be looking at verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 8, all the way through chapter 2, verse 1. Oh, and if you're new, (laughs) we do have Bibles in the back of the pew. Um, Hosea is found in the Old Testament, kind of in the middle. Um, There is a a table of contents, um, so feel free to follow along with us. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy.
1: I've heard about Christians who have obeyed God in crazy ways. Like they went to jail, and the people said, you need to renounce Jesus, and if you don't, you cannot go free. And I thought to myself, man, if I was in that situation, I could probably do it. I could probably hang tough. But then when I reflect on my everyday life, on my day-to-day experience of following Jesus, I often fall apart over much smaller things. I mean, there have been times where I've gotten in a traffic jam when I wasn't expecting it, and I flipped out. And, and I just noticed that wherever I go and whatever I do, that there's a curse in me, there's a brokenness in this world, and it weighs on me and it weighs on us. And I think that all of us would admit that as we live, As we go from day to day, on most days, something happens that reminds us of the cursed world that we live in. For me this week, I really hurt my finger. And the pain of this finger has reminded me that everything isn't right, that things are really broken. And so the question that I want to approach today is, what does God do about the world and its brokenness? That's what the text answers. Why are things so messed up and how is God going to address the way things are messed up? And it's actually going to take a little time for us to get there at the end of the sermon, so please hang in there. I just wanted to give you a preview that that's precisely where we are going. Okay, so let's hop into the text. Point one is out of God's family. So we're picking up from where Pastor Sam left off last week in verses 2 through 7. And if you remember, God sent Hosea to his people to warn them to turn from their sin. And things were actually so bad that God said, words are not going to do it. I'm going to have to send a human being with a human picture to remind you of how bad your sin is going to be. So God told Hosea, I want you to marry a whore someone who's good you know is gonna cheat on you because the picture of you being cheated on is a picture of how my people are treating me and until they understand that they're not going to turn from that and in addition to that picture I want you to name your kids names not happy names like the kids in this congregation has but sad names. Can you imagine giving your kid a sad name on purpose as a reminder to the people in your community that judgment is coming? Does anyone remember the first name that God told Hosea to name his first child? What it was? No mercy was number two. But I was going to ask that question next. Jezreel was the first one. And so now this evening, we get to talk about the third child. So let's take a look at Hosea 1, 8, 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. God said, I want you to name this child, not my people. And the reason couldn't be worse, he says, because you are no longer my people, It's like getting in a bad car accident and hoping everyone's okay, but actually finding out that someone was really badly hurt or even killed. They had probably been hoping, I hope the name of this third child is a little better, but it's worse. They had sinned so bad that their relationship with God was about to be over. Listen to Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. This paints a picture of what the relationship was supposed to be like, what it could have been, what it was for a while. It says, I will make you my dwelling place, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Israel could once say, I belong to God, and he belongs to me. And their sin had gotten so much in the way that it had blown that up. This would be like getting adopted into a home from off the streets and that your parents love you and care for you and show you mercy that you don't deserve and you just stay out late and disrespect them again and again and again and they say, get out of the house, this is over. That's the way that Israel treated their God and this child's name is the picture that this is what is going to happen to them. I just want you to think for a moment. What's the worst tragedy that could happen to you? You could lose your money, you could lose your job, you could lose your friends, you could lose your family. And this text is a reminder to us that the greatest judgment of all that could ever happen to us is we could lose God, that someone could lose God. And I don't think that's the first thing that comes into my mind when I'm afraid of losing something. And so if that's not in our hearts we have to check our hearts and ask what's in them. So what does this mean for Israel? It means that other nations are going to come in and abuse them and screw up their lives and take them to be prisoners in another nation. But I want to point to one particular judgment that's really important for us to understand. Is that God's people are going to be demoted to the level of the other nations. They're going to go from God's chosen special people to Gentiles. And a Gentile is someone who's under the wrath and judgment of God because all of us have committed sin and we're not in a special relationship with God where he's going to forgive us. And here's why that's important for us today. Because we're the Gentiles. We're the ones who are under God's sin. And ju- God, we are the ones who sin against God and we're under his judgment. If you listen to the book of Romans, this is what verse 12 says in chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all people because all sin. So the Bible teaches... That when Adam sinned, that we inherit his guilt, and we inherit his nature, and we inherit his brokenness. That's why we do the things we don't want to do. That's why life is tough. It's because our first ancestor, Adam, disobeyed God. I just want you to think for a second. Why do you struggle with selfishness, and you just can't seem to not be selfish? Why does our anger lead us to treat and say things to people that we don't want to say to them and think thoughts we, don't, we shouldn't think about them? Why does our lust cause us to think and treat people like objects rather than people? And the answer is because our first ancestor, Adam, sinned and plunged the world into death. I mean, it's a beautiful day today, isn't it? It's so easy to think that, oh, this world isn't really so bad. But we've all experienced pain where we know it is. We all know that underneath the surface, something is seriously wrong. And I think more than anything, the reminder that all of us are aging and getting closer to death and will one day die is the clearest reminder of all that everything is not right, that things are broken. So Sam and Joanna had their new baby, Hope, and they could have named that baby Not My People. I don't know if you thought about that. But if they did, and they were Israelites, they could have passed that baby around and every time someone held that baby, they would have been reminded of their broken relationship with God. And I just want you to pause and ask yourself right now, do you feel your need for God? Here's the main point I want for us to remember today. Is that being outside of the family of God brings ultimate death while being inside of the family of God brings life from God. Do you feel your need to be in God's family? It's a working gift from God when we experience that need, when we feel that need to be in God's family. Okay, let's move to point two. God's scandalous adoption. Verse 9 is a devastating word. In fact, it's so devastating that it leaves the Israelites and it leaves us without any hope on our own. I mean, how can you get in a family that you need to get into but you're not a part of? Just think about that. There's nothing you can do to make yourself part of someone else's family. And if our greatest need is to be a part of another family, then we are lost and without hope because if there's another family and there's a king who rules that family well, there's no way that we can make ourselves a part of that family. So then the question we want to ask when we get to this point of the text is what will God say next? What's God going to do? Is he going to utter more judgment? Or is he going to give us the mercy that we need to hear? So let's take a look at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So without God's warning, mercy comes into the picture in the face of judgment. It's an amazing God we serve. You see, even though he's the God of justice, he also has a heart of love, and that love is as deep as the ocean. Sam brought up a verse last week from Exodus 34 where God said that he will by no means clear the guilty. That's, that's an ominous word from God. But before he ever says that, and he reveals his character He says, behold, I am the Lord and merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So there's a God who is a judge who judges the guilty, but he's also a God who loves and shows mercy. And thankfully, it's as hard to want to show mercy even though we deserve judgment. So now, In verse 10, we want to ask, how is it that God shows his mercy? How does God go about showing his mercy? He says to Israel, Although my sin has caused me to punish you by removing you from my family, yet the day is coming where I will adopt you into my family, and it will be bigger and better forever. And God's decision to show this kind of over-the-top love Want to readopt children he's kicked out of his family? That's not something that he just came up with on the spur of the moment. This has actually been his plan for hundreds and hundreds of years. He's always planned on being a God of mercy. And we know this from Exodus 22 17. He says to Abraham, hundreds of years before Hosea, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. That's the same language as Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. This is why the promises of God are so precious for us. Because our consciences can feel like we're condemned, right? We can feel the wrath of God. We can feel the judgment we deserve. And the promises of God give us hope that there's mercy for us. Something we would forget without his promises. So now I want to ask, how does the restoration of God's family happen? So we see these two ideas are just collided right together without a whole lot of description. Not my family into my family. How does this restoration happen and what does it have to do with us? So, several hundred years later, the Israelites return to their homeland like God had promised they would. And they think, wow, God has been good to us. But they notice that their temple is small, their wealth is small, their numbers are small. Things are not the way God promised they would have been when he restored them. And so they would have been left thinking, God, when are are you going to fulfill your promises to us? And then several hundred years later, several generations later, Jesus of Nazareth is born. And he alone lives the perfect life. He alone lives as the child of God. Adam, our first ancestor, couldn't be. No Israelite could be. And none of us can be. He deserved to be treated well, but yet he was mistreated. He suffered everything any of us in here have ever suffered and more. Here's something I want you to walk away with today. Jesus became the not my people, even though he deserved to be treated like God's son. Jesus was treated like the Israelites deserved to be treated as not my people. Listen to what Mark chapter 15 says. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He he rose. And he died as not my people so that when he came back from the dead, he could make anybody a child of God. Remember how I said earlier that the family gets bigger and better when God restores it? This is the big difference. Before in the Old Testament, there was the nation of God, Israel, and the Gentiles. And now once Jesus has come and finished his work and become the not my people, he makes a way for anyone to become a child of the living God. That's why we call our church all people's church. Because literally anyone, no matter who you are or what you've done or where you come from, if you repent and believe in Jesus, you are a member of the family. And friend, if you believe in Jesus, no one and nothing can keep you from the family. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 9. He says in point, in verse 23, he says, And we were among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and the Gentiles. And then verse 25, he says, concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea. So Paul says that when Hosea wrote those words, he was writing about people who were not Jewish. He was looking forward to the day where the family would include all kinds of people. Those who are not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. I said earlier that being outside of the God or outside of the family of God is ultimately fatal. But being in the family of God brings life and restoration. And the good news I have for you today is that because of Jesus anyone can join the family of God if you're here today. That's the deepest need I have. That's the deepest need you have. If you're already in the family of God then praise the Lord. Don't we need to remember that and be thankful for it every day? Don't don't we neglect to thank Jesus for what he's done for us? And if it doesn't describe you yet, you haven't joined this family. It is your deepest need. And because of what Jesus has done, you're welcome. There's a spot at the dinner table for you. Okay, point three, I want to talk about one of the benefits of God's adoption. So I'd like to give you a great reason why you should want to join this family if you haven't joined it yet or a great reason to just be all the more committed to it if you are. Let's take a look at verse 111 through 2.1. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Hosea is talking about this day of restoration. And what does he start by saying? He says, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now that's a little confusing, isn't it? Because when God used Jezreel's name before, it was a sign of curse. Curse. That was the first child's name, and it meant judgment was coming. And now God's saying the name is associated with mercy. Verse 4 says in chapter 1, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Israel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now Jezreel is no longer a sign of curse. The Hebrew for Jezreel actually means he sows, And that line, and they shall go up from the land, that can actually be translated, it will spring up from the land, or they will spring up from the land, like a plant or tree that's flourishing. So now God's saying that name, that I spoke to you as a sign of my judgment against you for your sin, is now going to be a symbol of the mercy I'm going to have for you in spite of your sin. Remember the name of the next two children. They were no mercy and not my people. But what does chapter two, verse one says? Say to your brothers, "You are my people." And to your sisters, "You have received mercy." One scholar says the name of each child is transformed from a sign of judgment to a sign of grace. I keep coming back to this line: being outside of the family of God is fatal. Being in the family of God brings life. Well, how does the family of God bring life? It turns to specific curses. God will come and turn the specific curses of sin that have affected us and heal them. He will bring us to a place better than we ever could have been if we didn't feel the effect of sin and curse and the fall in our lives. When God heals someone, when God heals something, he doesn't just restore it back to where it would have been. He brings it further than it ever could have been. I think a lot of times we have no answer for why is there so much evil and brokenness in the world. I think this is part of the answer. Is because what God is going to do is greater than whatever could have been if there wasn't any pain to begin with. And I don't mean just on a cosmic, worldwide level. I mean individually in your lives. I mean the the pain and brokenness that you have experienced. God is going to overturn that to bring you to a place of more joy and rest and peace than he could have otherwise if you had never experienced those things. The Bible is not kidding when it says he's a good father and he knows how to take care of you. I wonder, have you tasted fatherlessness or abuse in your life? God's good fathering now and forever will surpass now even more anything that you missed out on. Have you wasted your life in addiction, selfishness, or another sin? God's forgiving grace now more than ever, and give you purposeful joy. Have you felt alone, rejected, or betrayed? The closeness of Christ can be closer to you now and forever than it would have been if you had never felt lonely. If you had never felt lonely, you wouldn't know how to appreciate the nearness of Christ in a new way you can now. That's the great joy of entering the family. That all of us have curses, all of us have pain, all of us have suffering that only Jesus can remove. It doesn't happen instantly. It happens gradually over the course of your life. And a lot of those complete restoration that we all need, we won't get to experience that until Jesus comes back. we get to hope in it. We get to look forward to it. And we remain confident even in the midst of suffering and sorrow. Um, I really like a book called The Return of the King. And in that book, Sam and his friend Frodo, they think they're about to die. They think that their friends had died. They think that there's going to be immense suffering in the world and a friend of theirs shows up named Gandalf and He rescues them and brings them back, and they found out that they're going to live, that everything's going to be okay, that their friends are alive, that they vanquished their greatest foe, and that there's going to be peace and joy in the world. And I love the question Sam asks at this point in the book. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer that Jesus gives us is yes. If you come to me, everything sad in your life one day is going to come untrue. I'm sure some of you people have seen, seen the, those videos of parents who come home from war and surprise their children with a surprise visit. I, I saw this one video where the dad walks into her classroom at her elementary school and She's about nine years old and she gets up and runs over and hugs her dad and she's weeping and sobbing and won't let go of him. I think this shows us an important principle. That things when they're restored are sweeter to us than if we ever lost them. And that's what God's up to whenever we lose health or friend or family. God's up to restoring it to us to make it sweeter to us So that we can taste how sweet jesus is okay how should we live in light of this message how should this message change how we live today i want to start with us who are already believers and i want to encourage us not to lose heart because we believe satan's lie that when things are not going well in our lives like we expected them to believe or we suffer things that we didn't want to suffer, that God actually doesn't love us as much as we thought he did, and he doesn't care about us, and that's not the case. As a child of God, we can remain joyful in our sorrow because we don't enjoy sorrow, but because we know our sorrow is going to lead to greater joy than we could have ever had. So if you're like me, and you suffer with that, you struggle with that on a day-to-day basis, I want to invite you, to memorize two verses with me this week. 2 Corinthians 4 16 and 17. It says, But we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As a promise, from God, that we can quote to ourselves when we're tempted to doubt that he can take care of us. I'm also afraid, on the other hand, I want to address unbelievers. I'm afraid that there are unbelievers here, or skeptics, who may think that I'm too far from God for him to save me, that I've done too much for Jesus to welcome me back. I'm too much of a sinner. And this text reminds us that someone who lived the perfect life as the perfect child of God and died and rose again, he can welcome you into his family if he wants to. And no one can say no to it. There will be people and things who try to say no, but they cannot stop Jesus from welcoming you into his family. And so my reminder to you today is don't fear not being welcomed by God only fear that you might refuse his welcome and never come to him. So come to him. We would love to welcome you into our expression of this global family. And we would love to see you baptized. And if you come from a broken family that has let you down, this family here will be the first step in God's process of making that right. This first step of restoring what you missed out on. Now I want to address our whole community. Paul encourages us to remind one another that Jesus Christ is coming back again to make all things right. And I just want us to think, what would happen if more than complaining about the brokenness of our world and ourselves, we reminded one another that Jesus Christ is coming back? Wouldn't this become the most hopeful group of people you've ever been around, if that's what we talked about the most, that Jesus is coming back to restore everything and to make everything right and to take our sorrow and make it joy? I think we can do that. I think that we can talk about him in that way and that he can change our community. I just want to end by reminding us that Jesus is the child of God who suffered and was treated like an orphan so that we could become children of God, even though we don't deserve it. And the point is, is that he was perfect so we don't have to be. So if you know him, rejoice in him today, all the more. And if you don't know him, come to him. Because there's room for you in his family. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that something you say in your word is, Behold, I'm coming to make all things new. And we long for that day. And we thank you that you'll address every hurt and every pain we've ever experienced and redeem it and make us and the world even better than we ever could have been. So Jesus, please come soon. Come quickly. And thank you for all you've given us and all you've done. I pray these things in your name. Amen.